What's up sports fans? What's up gamers? My name's Mel and welcome back to the Two Line Offside podcast. The podcast that brings sports and games together. Welcome to the third episode, but the second episode of that massive soccer organization that has the hearts of so many around the world, FIFA. If you missed episode one of FIFA, I'm going to strongly suggest that you go back and give her a listen, or else much of this episode will be a little hard to stand. Go give that a lesson first, and then come back here. Go on. We'll wait. Right here. Now, I'm sure that there are some of you who are inevitably still here. And you know what? I respect the rebel in you, so welcome to episode 2 of FIFA. Now, like I said in the last pod, when I get really revved up and excited about stuff, I have a tendency to swear. Sorry, Grandma. That being said, I'm going to beep all of the audio, so if you want to listen with your kids, I got you. However, I think the sound is super boring, so I've decided to beep the audio with my own unique sounds that will somehow relate to the episode. See if you can ID the sounds I used. And if you want to know what sounds I used in the last FIFA episode, You'll find that answer at the intermission section of this pod, which is the approximate midpoint, which I mark between two whistle sounds, like this. Last thing before we start, though I've chosen to beep all of the audio, the fact is that this story does contain references to some fairly shady organized crime. If for some reason you don't want your small humans exposed to such things, then this is your warning. In that case, The story of FIFA probably isn't for them, honestly. It's pretty much chock full of some shady kit. (laughs) See what I did there? But I'm no one's parent, so what do I know? With all the warnings out of the way, it's time to get on with the show. Time to go offside. Okay, so I promised a brief recap of last episode. I initially thought I'd just insert clips from the last episode. But that's way too easy. So instead, I've decided I'm going to try to give you a super fast recap of the important bits of episode one. So, way back in 1863, a man named Ebenezer Morley, who was an old-timey lawyer, created a game we all now know and love as football or soccer, depending on where you live, for some of the boys that he used to mentor. Pretty soon, the sport was being played by other folks in Europe. The only problem with this model is that teams couldn't play each other with the consistent set of rules. They fixed this problem, but it was largely not as important as you might think. Then, in 1904, FIFA was formed and created a uniformed set of rules and the concept of a world champion, which was crowned after a tournament of various countries competing. Fast forward a bunch... And we get to a guy by the name of Zhao Havelange as the president of FIFA, who ushers in the concept of modern-day sports marketing with the help of this executive director, an impending bad guy, Joseph Sepp Blatter. And that is where I left you last time, folks.
So when I last left you, Zhao Havilland and the fine folks of FIFA were kind of topped because they basically had no money. But what they did have was an ace, or rather an hole up their sleeve by the name of Horst Dasser. I really hope I'm saying that correctly as head hole of Adidas, in part at the behest of then FIFA executive director and future impending worldwide all-time big bad FIFA crime boss, Sepp Blatter, Adidas president and prime sponsor of FIFA, Horst Dosser, and his business partner, Patrick Nelly, had an idea. Basically, they did this thing which, to put simply, was invent the concept of modern-day sports marketing as we know it. So, prior to Hosser and Nally's move that I'm about to tell you about, when sports companies went looking for sports sponsorships, they usually went looking for sponsorships from other sports companies. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you convinced to buy your Sony television while watching Major League Baseball? Well, you can thank, at least in part, Host Dassler and Adidas for that. Dassler and Nally decided that in an effort to save FIFA, because remember, they have stock in this, Adidas bought all of the rights to sell all things FIFA, so if FIFA fails, Adidas loses all that money. In an effort to save FIFA, they approached the fine folks at Coca-Cola. This is the part where I probably blow my chances at getting a Coke sponsorship. So FIFA, by way of then executive director Joseph Sepp Blatter, and Adidas, by way of Horst Dosser, and his business partner Nally, approach Coke and suggest a partnership. Initially, the folks at Coke are rightfully kind of confused. Why would a company trying to promote playing football, an active game, want an investment from a soft drink company? And if this goes ahead, how many Cokes does FIFA plan to sell? FIFA initially, instead, suggests that the point of this partnership isn't to sell individual Cokes, but rather to sell the idea of Cokes to people watching the games. So rather than sell someone a single Coke, I sell them on the idea that they want Coke, and they buy a 24-pack. And that's, my friends, is at least in part how the concept of modern sports marketing has evolved to the point where it is today. Uh, you're welcome for definitely taking that course in university, but not forcing you to do it. This is how you ended up with that Sony TV after watching a baseball game. So it turns out that this marketing strategy totally works. And not only is FIFA able to stay afloat, they're also able to give birth 
to a bunch of FIFA slash Coca-Cola World Cup development programs. This not only allowed Havalanche to have the cash that he needed, but also it gave him the opportunity to make good on a lot of promises that had got him the presidential vote in the first place, such as the promise to foster development of football and or soccer in various forms in various parts of the world. One of those other promises also involved Zhao expelling South Africa, stating that the country would no longer be allowed to be a member of FIFA until it put an end to apartheid. Up until then, South Africa had actually created laws that stated that no football team could legally play in the SA if the team was mixed, meaning they had both white, black, and or players of color on their team. Just a note, that South Africa was reinstated into FIFA on July 3rd, 1992. Along with barring a racist South Africa from play, Havilland was also able to allow the entrance of many more member nations, such as many more from Africa and even Australia. Havilland would also use a lot of this Coke development money to provide funding to impoverished member nations to develop football through, through the building of stuff like fields. The problem with this is that it had, and would continue into the modern era, to have very little oversight as to whether or not FIFA's funds were actually being used for the betterment of football in that country, or if they were used to line the pockets of folks at the top of these individual member nations. Speaking of folks who like to line their pockets with money that doesn't belong to them, I'm stoked to introduce you to two more motherfuckers who I like to refer to as the bromance from hell. But before we do that, though, I think I hear a whistle, which means it's time for intermission sports marketing edition. Welcome to intermission, folks. This is the part of the show where I throw some seriously random sports facts at you that I found while working on this episode. And, since this episode, so far, has been focused on the beginnings of sports marketing, I thought I'd throw some sports marketing facts your way. Most of these facts are facts that no one who didn't take a certain professor's sports marketing class has in business knowing. But, I totally took that class. So, welcome to my world. Just like I promised, though, if you want to be a total square and skip this section, you can do that by skipping to here. 20 minutes, 8 seconds. If you're still here, though, thanks for being here. Time to deep dive into some sports marketing facts, baby. So, this isn't entirely a sports marketing fact, but I've always found it super cool to know that Gatorade, yeah, that's right, that weird yellow liquid, that sports stars always seem to be sweating on commercials in the 90s? It was in fact created by the University of Florida by a team of scientists led by Dr. James Robert Cade in order to prevent its football players from losing too much water during practices. Ironically, Gatorade is now owned by the Pepsi Company, long-term rival of its arch-nemesis, the aforementioned Coca-Cola Company. Uh. 
Gatorade was bought by Pepsi for $13 billion in 2001. Here's another wild one. You can actually find this one on YouTube if you look, but I'm not going to use the audio because I really don't want either FIFA or Brazilian television to come after me. But during the 1970 World Cup, shoe company Puma came up with this brilliant marketing move. They paid Brazilian football star Pele, yes, that's right, the legit Pele, to genuinely tie his shoes at the beginning of the game, right before kickoff. Pele asked the ref, ref for time to tie his shoes, and, I guess, when you're one of the greatest football stars of your time, the ref just gives you time. Instantly, the entire world is now focused on the greatest football star in the world trying to tie his shoes i.e. his Puma shoes, which everyone is now focused on. A few of the sources I found say that Pele was paid by Puma $12,000 just for that move, focusing the entire football world just on his shoes, although I can't confirm nor deny whether or not this is actually true. Speaking of eccentricities, when it comes to clothing, one of the main stars of today's pod Chuck Blazer, who at the beginning of this podcast I was going to make fun of for looking like Santa Claus's lesser accomplished uncle, actually made the joke for me <gasps> when I was directed to his personal blog thanks to an article by the BBC where he dressed up as Santa Claus for Halloween in 2011 and then posted about it in his personal blog. We also famously know of his parrot named Max Blazer and a cat which genuinely had its own apartment in Trump Tower. Okay, now that we've got some of those random facts down, I think it's time for the reason I know some of you have stuck around. What on earth were the sounds I used for the censorship in that last FIFA episode? I'm so glad you asked. So these are the two censorship sounds. And... Mbappe from the last episode. Why on earth would I choose these two sounds together? Again, I'm so glad you asked. So if you've ever watched France partake in some sort of sporting event, you'll notice that they often wear a rooster on their uniforms. Why do they do this? Well, if you Google it, which I did and then did a super deep dive afterwards, you'll find that this is referred to as the Gaelic rooster. No, 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 not that Gaelic. God, it's not that one either. Ireland, Scotland, you guys sound great, but can you please stop making me play national anthems?
god, Francis here. There are a few reasons and times why this may have become a national symbol, which you can totally look up if you're interested in, but here are the two that I found the most interesting. So one of the reasons that the rooster was associated with France was an observation by Latin-speaking people that the word Gaelis, which I hope I'm saying right, which originally in France referred to a person who was living in an area known as Gaul, modern-day France and Belgium, for those of you who like geography, was similar-sounding. So Gullis and Gull, if not the exact same word. Gullis, which actually meant rooster in Latin. So basically, based on this story, it was a means of making fun of the French, because the Latin thought that the name of those people in Gull sounded funny. But that story's also evolved a little bit since the time of the Romans and Latin for that matter, or at least Latin in mainstream society. Later on, the rooster in question also became a symbol of Christianity. Not a religious scholar warning. Not a religious scholar warning. Not a religious scholar warning. I'm going to preface this by saying that I am not someone who's super awesome at knowing Bible stories, but this is the story as I understand it. The reason that the rooster is associated with Christianity is because Peter, who would eventually go on to become one of Jesus's apostles, would not choose to believe or remember the teachings of Jesus until after the rooster crowed. Once the rooster crowed, it was said that Peter remembered the teachings of Jesus. This is the reason that is often given when one is asking about why so many of the graves found in France, often those in the underground catacombs, are adorned with roosters. Because it symbolizes Peter hearing the words of Jesus. Thus, it finds itself in the kits of the France football players, and honestly, also some other athletic events, everywhere. The second sound plays homage to 24-year-old Kylian Mbappe, the captain of France's national team. He's widely regarded as one of football's rising stars. Among, among his many accomplishments, including having an excellent name, Killian became the second highest paid player to be transferred for a fee of 180 million euros at just 18. He'd go on to prove himself not only for his club team, but also on May 17, 2018, when he debuted when he debuted for Team France at the World Cup in Russia. He went on to score his first World Cup goal in France's 1-0 game over Peru. This not only made him the youngest scoring person in FIFA World Cup history at the age of just 19, it also led him to go on to score again in the 2018 World Cup final, where France beat Croatia in a 4-2 win, eventually winning him a World Cup and, consequently, cover art on the most recent FIFA 23 video game. Well, folks, that marks the end of intermission. So we're going to move on to two of the guys I initially decided I'd like to structure this episode about. There are two people who both I, along with John Oliver of HBO, like to refer to as the bromance from hell. <laughs> The first of these two dudes goes by the name of Chuck Blazer. 
Chuck is this guy who, if you look at it literally, grew to be this really important millionaire guy in American soccer by literally starting at the level of basically a soccer mom. He basically elevated himself to the level of being very important in FIFA circles and many world soccer circles. Allow me to take you on the ride from American soccer mom to American soccer royalty. Chuck Blazer was born Charles Gordon Blazer on April 26, 1945, in Queens, New York. His soccer origin story goes a little bit like this. Chuck found himself the director of the New Rochelle Soccer League and the co-founder of the Westchester Youth Soccer League in the mid-1970s. And in 1980, he found himself elected the first vice president of the Southern New York Soccer Association, which means Chuck legit went from overseeing soccer operations in his local area to overseeing it through large areas of the state. I'm going to take a pause in Chuck's story to just acknowledge that a lot of this history that I'm relying on comes from the incredible book Red Card by Ken Binsinger of the New York Times. If you even kind of like the story so far, you should totally go read his book. It's full of way more info on this topic and reads like a wild crime novel, except it happened in real life. Okay, back to Chuck. From the, B from the VP of the Southern New York Soccer Association in 1984, Chuck wins the election for executive vice president of the U.S. Soccer Federation. I feel like it's worth noting that most of the soccer positions that Chuck has held up until the U.S. Soccer Federations are largely unpaid. Like, they're legit some of the positions that your mom might have taken while her kids played in the league. Except, Chuck's kids playing soccer wasn't really his motivation, at least not as far as I can tell. From what I can tell, Chuck saw an untapped potential in the soccer market in America. He saw this more as a business opportunity or rather a future business opportunity than something he could do to help his kids, or honestly, even necessarily the kids in the league that we're talking about. I'm not saying Chuck didn't care about any of these kids in his newfound role at the soccer league, but he definitely was using this more as a stepping stone. Like the business version of the mom who brings fruit slices. Mmm. Fruit slices. Actually, you know what? Scratch that. Chuck's future endeavors will make that this an insult to soccer moms everywhere. 
everyone knows that the mom who brought orange slices to the soccer game was actually the overall favorite. Not because the kids necessarily thoroughly enjoyed it, more than the, I don't know, artificial stuff that the mom, who was slightly less health conscious built, brought. But rather, because nothing feels better than an orange slice in the middle of a hot, sweaty soccer game. And you know all the other moms are like, dang it. Ed is the star of the show. So shout out to you, soccer moms. You're the real heroes here. Keep bringing those orange slices. Chuck found himself in a few more positions before he became caught up in FIFA stuff, but I'm going to tell you about one more, because foreshadowing. One of the first positions that Chuck actually got paid for in soccer was a position that he created for himself when he and a business partner co-founded a league they called the American Soccer League. As the co-founder, he awarded himself a salary of $48,000. Here comes the foreshadowing part. A year after doing that, Chuck was chased out of his own organization as club owners began to become frustrated that Chuck was unwilling to disclose the financial information of the professional organization with everyone else, even within the organization. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit to the more exciting parts of Chuck's story. The much more exciting part of Chuck's career and the beginning of his bromance from hell that I've been plugging come from, comes from his work with CONCACAF. And no, it's not the weirdly over-sugary, over-caffeinated beverage that Avery from NCIF drinks. That's CAFPAL. CONCACAF stands for the Confederation of North Central America and Caribbean Association Football. In much the same way that the Olympic Committee has similar segmented organizations, CONCACAF is a group of member nations within FIFA. It contains 41 member, na member nations, which makes it one of the largest block organizations within FIFA, and it's where Chuck's story gets interesting. In 1990, Chuck managed to find himself inside FIFA circles. He successfully managed to become an integral member of the team that helped drive the election of Jack Warner of Trinidad to the presidency of CONCACAF. Jack being the second member of this bromance from hell. <laughs> and if you needed any confirmation from anyone that Jack Warner was slash is a at least morally corrupt dude and at most an evil guy, allow me to present you with the knowledge that him and HBO's John Oliver have traded trash-talking videos back and forth at least three times where John Oliver trashes this old man and his controversial business choices, while Jack responds by creating a video with dramatic climactic music, where he responds by saying, quote, I do not have to listen to the opinions of some 
American Fool. That aside, before I drag this guy Jack Warner completely through the mud, though, I'm going to point out that if nothing else, I do respect Jack's hustle. Unlike Chuck, Jack brought himself out of poverty in Trinidad largely on his own, through lots of hard work and, quite honestly, some swindling. This swindling of Jack's, though, seems to have become a pattern, a pattern which Jack continued beyond the time he was struggling to work for bread. Jack Warner was born January 1943 in Trinidad and Tobago. Just like our friend Chuck, Jack rose through the ranks of, of football business organizations in his home nation. Jack supplemented many of these non-paying football jobs by acting as a high school teacher in the Port of Spain, capital of Trinidad and Tobago. This is the part of the show where I want to make it 100% clear that I am not throwing shade at any teachers in any way. I legit think that all the work the teachers put into their students is amazing, and I appreciate it very much. Also, bonus shout-out to the specific teacher who definitely knows who she is, who almost is single-handedly responsible for me becoming a, quote, list person who also writes outlines. Two things that actually played a pretty important role in the formation of these all these research-heavy episodes. Thanks for being awesome, my friend. Extra shout out to all those teachers out there who managed to do their jobs while also simultaneously becoming football crime lords like Mr. Warner. Jack becoming this big, important president of CONCACAF, that's a seriously annoyingly long acronym, by the way, is largely due to the work and ideas of his friend, none other than Chuck Blazer. (laughs) It also came at a weird time for Jack. According to the incredible work, again, of Ken Binsinger, who wrote that book Red Card, we learn that Blazer approached Jack about how he should run for the presidency of CONCACAF literally the day after November 19th, 1989, when the U.S. had fired what was referred to as, quote, the shot heard around the world, when one of its players scored the only goal in a nil-nil tie between Trinidad and the U.S., which then propelled the U.S. into into a qualifying spot in the coming World Cup, excluding Trinidad. So, weird rivalry between the two nations aside, Chuck shows up at Jack's house the next day and suggests that Jack should run for the presidency of CONCACAF in the coming election. With the help of his new friend Chuck Blazer, who, by the way, didn't have a job in soccer at the time, Jack or Warner was elected president of CONCACAF on April 6, 1990. So I've told you that Jack and Chuck are bad, And John Oliver has told you that Jack and Chuck are bad. But why on earth is this true, Mal? I'm so glad you asked. Because 
That's literally the crux of this entire podcast. Well, remember that game between the U.S. and Trinidad that I told you about? That time, Jack was was the secretary for the Trinidadian Soccer Association, which hosted that event. Now, if I learned one thing in sports marketing, it's that one of the most important things that a person needs to do when organizing an event is to take into account the number of people involved in an event. This is something that then-Secretary Jack was in charge of doing, and he failed to do spectacularly, in a spectacularly shady, swindling fashion. The Port of Spain, which is the national stadium where this USA-Trinidad match went down, was designed to hold 25,000 people. On the day of the game between Trinidad and the U.S., fans were shocked to learn that 48,000 tickets had been sold, which left a large mass of people outraged and outside the stadium, where they would eventually storm the buses of both teams in protest. The mismanagement of these tickets was such a big deal that the government would launch an inquest into what had actually happened. Initially, Jack totally denied that these tickets had been oversold. But months later, he did in fact admit to selling more tickets than were actually available within the stadium. However, the damage had obviously already been done, and Jack released this info so much later that the government neglected to try to retrieve its funds. The implication is that Jack pocketed this difference of 18,000 ticket sales for himself. This trend of pocketing money that was earmarked for some other purpose, or just straight up wasn't for him, would continue into his time at CONCACAF and would eventually spell a downfall for both him and his buddy Chuck. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Now once Jack became president at CONCACAF, again, not CAF pal, like Abby on NCIS, one of his first big scams takes place in 2006, when Trinidad makes the World Cup. Now, lots of Exco folks, Exco is the name of some of FIFA's highest ranking guys, are allotted FIFA tickets. But these rules stipulate that these tickets are supposed to be sold at cost, meaning that the people who have them are not supposed to profit more than FIFA would for these tickets. Do we think that Jackie adhered to this rule? Of course not. It was found a year later that Jack had given the right to sell those tickets over to a travel agency owned by, you guessed it, Jack Warner himself, which sold the tickets along with travel bundles and then pocketed Jack an astounding $900,000. An amount I can only assume was a considerable upgrade from his salary as a teacher. By the time this information reaches FIFA, however, Jack informs them that he has severed ties with the company, when in fact, all that's actually happened is that Jack has transferred the name and ownership of the company into his son's name. FIFA concludes, based on this, that there is no evidence to suggest that Jack knew the tickets were being sold in such a manner, 
and they dismissed the case after asking that a million was returned to them. Jack Warner only returned 25,000 of that million. That is just one of many times while I was researching this podcast that I couldn't help but bang my head off my desk. Ouch! This happened in 2006, you guys. FIFA had evidence that Jack was exploiting its system right in front of them, and they did nothing about it. I'm not even a big soccer fan, and it drives me absolutely wild. Warner's exploitation of his position at CONCACAF, still not a calf pal. Didn't stop there, though. It was well known that both during his time as the head of the CFU, which is short for the Caribbean Football Union, and at CONCACAF, that Jack was very, quote, generous. I'm putting that in quotes, by the way. In that he had offered up Trinidad often to host major tournaments. Again, according to the incredible work of Ken Binsinger, by 2009, Trinidad had hosted no less than nine regional tranches championships, three Caribbean youth soccer camps, three CONCACAF under-17 championships, and five CONCACAF under-20 championships. In each case, it's noted by Ken Binsinger that Jack Warner's staff knew that to meet his standards, they were supposed to not only double the cost of the budgets for those events so that he could skim some off the top, they also knew that they were to direct all those involved to Jack's travel agency to arrange the required travel. Was Jack making some serious dough this way too? I wouldn't bet against it. But Jack's appetite for money wasn't just limited to earning extra money on the top of literally just doing his actual job. Nope. Turns out Jack also had his eye on charity coffers, too. Remember the earthquake that rocked Haiti in 2010? The earthquake that was a magnitude 7.3 on the Richter scale? It resulted in over 50 aftershocks and 200,000 people dead and over 300,000 injured in the small nation, according to the fine folks at The Guardian. Considering Haiti was a member nation of FIFA, many of FIFA's nations wanted to help, and so a fund was set up. According to an incredible article written by LA Times writer Austin Knobloch, I'm not sure if I said that right, I'll leave the article in the show notes, who cites the BBC It was figured out that U.S. prosecutors were, in 2015, investigating evidence that they had found which suggested that Jack Warner 
spearheaded an event to try to raise funds for Haiti with the Korean Football Association. And then directed all $750,000 of those funds into a bank account that he controlled, rather than directing the funds towards anything that had anything to do with the relief funds for Haiti. He, in fact, faced extradition to the U.S. to stand for these charges as of 2015. This happening at the same time that our boy Jack claimed that he, and he alone, was willing to expose mass corruption at FIFA. As if that justifies his own, somehow. As of the recording of this pod, despite looking for it, I see no evidence that Jack has faced any actual jail time in America for that particular scheme. I also find it super ironic and annoying that it came to light in part, I assume, because of the scandal, that Jack, like lots of rich dudes, had an abundance of offshore bank accounts that were not subjected to a variety of taxes. Some of the accounts even remained with the name of the Caribbean Football Union, even though they appeared to be used only by Jack, exclusively for his personal finances. He also had a lot of these accounts, accounts put into the names of his sons so they wouldn't be under scrutiny from FIFA. Just for the record, Warner's sons never directly worked for FIFA. So, turns out he's not just a, not just a scumbag, he's also a really crummy parent by my measure. Ooh. Jack's not quite done being gross though, folks. If I'm being entirely honest, though, telling you the rest of this wild story is far too long and detailed to go to in this particular episode of the pod. Partly because the next of these part of this wildly twisty crime drama is going to take us even more international than the good old US of A and the Caribbean. Not only are we going to go to some fairly hot and tropical places, but I'm also going to put my sports law skills to the test. And that, folks, is where I'm going to leave you, with just one thing. Remember, it doesn't matter if you're onside or offside, just as long as you stay in the game. Unless your name is either Jack Warner or Chuck Blazer, in which case you should probably just leave at this point, honestly. The Two Line Offside podcast is a sound shifter production, meaning it's written, edited, and researched by yours truly. Shout out to Alex Action of Pixabay.com for the intro and outro of this pod, and also to Queb Sounds, also of Pixabay.com for music. Extra sound support from Tuesday Night, also of Pixabay.com for those excellent steel drums, and my esteemed colleague, without whom this podcast would not have been possible, Taz. Thank you for your sounds as well. Lastly, but certainly not least, Thank you for translation support from Tori Burnett. 
Thanks for understanding a language I do not. Full credit to the authors of the articles that I have read and used in this particular podcast, which genuinely took a lot of research. I'm going to leave their info in the show notes so you can have it if you want it. Lastly, if you think I went offside, or if you think I stayed onside, or if you have a suggestion for an episode, you can email me at offside.podcast12 at gmail.com. See you next time, guys.